Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about displeasure, speaking sexually. Might go without saying, but this is an episode that's going to have an explicit language tag on it. As did the one I shared last week, the talkback episode from Inappropriate Conversations 14, dealing with the manner in which sex education was conducted when I was very young. Uh, in the uh, intro to that particular show, I talked about a few things from the book by Nadia Boltz Weber called Shameless, released just last year, with the subtitle a sexual reformation. And in the book Shameless, she's basically detailing the answers she received to a series of questions that she chose to ask. And uh, those questions are threefold. And as I mentioned at the intro last time, I feel like my experience that was detailed in Inappropriate Conversations 14 was sort of the answer to these questions. Quickly, uh, growing up, what messages did you receive from the church about sex and the body? How did these messages affect you? And how have you navigated your life now as an adult? Those were the questions that really kind of formed the heart of Boltzweber's book. There's an interesting intersection here between what Weber did in her book and what I intend to talk about. Because I've long wanted to return to the idea of sex education done the right way. And maybe challenge it just a little bit to say that even despite the fact that as I was growing up, talk about sex within the church was handled extremely frankly and yielded good results, at least in my life. I see enough evidence to suggest that maybe from a male to female perspective, what I got out of it was better, maybe than what some of my female counterparts got out of it. Now, it could be that I'm going to look backward and criticize the way sex education was done, even in a good way, in my own personal experience. Or certainly criticize the way it's been done since then, which has been haphazard at best, with constant political infighting over things like abstinence-only education or abstinence-plus education. It seems like sex education conversations in America for the last 40 years have been about what we're not teaching and not about what we are teaching. But it could be that it's unfair to put too much blame at the feet of sex education as a concept. It could be that the problems are societal instead. Either way... I see evidence, enough evidence that it's worth dedicating an entire Inappropriate Conversations podcast to, to suggest that we've been teaching women the wrong thing. Even in our best day, we've been teaching women the wrong thing. And you could make an argument, and maybe I will at the end of the episode, that we're doing better than we've done in centuries, so we shouldn't complain. I still think more needs to be done. More progress needs to be made. To return back to Bolt Weber's book, she describes it sort of this way. Each day, women endure male acts of dominance in countless ways. When a woman is forced to either laugh at dirty jokes made by men in her workplace or face social or professional repercussions, it is an act of domination. When a man stands over a woman, taking up her physical space, explaining something to her that she already knows, it is physically reminding her of how easily dominated she is. It is a reminder of her place. When a man corners three little girls outside a candy store, opens his coat, and masturbates in front of them, it is not so much about sexual proclivity as it is about power. 
the thing making that man erect is his assertion of dominance. The corner has peeled up in our court culture, and now there is you know, a little cat fur and dust on it, and we can't get it to stick back down. I suggest that we must take that peeled up corner and pull, even if it hurts. If we look as deep as we can stomach, what we'll find at the center is heresy. The 19th century theologian Frederick Schleiermacher defines heresy as that which preserves the appearance of Christianity, yet contradicts its essence. The heresy is this. With all the trappings of Christianity behind us, we who seek to justify or maintain our dominance over another group of people have historically used the Bible, Genesis in particular, to prove that domination is not actually an abuse of power at the expense of others, but it is indeed part of God's plan. Genesis is an origin story, and every culture has its own. Origin stories tell us how the world came about, where we came from, and other important things like why snakes don't have legs. We may think we know our own origin story really well, but the Garden of Eden account in Genesis is notably devoid of several elements that lore has inserted into it. For instance, there are actually no mentions of original sin, a fall from grace, Satan, or temptation, and there wasn't even an apple involved. Nadia Boltz-Weber from Shameless. I'll come back to her in just a little bit because I think she does something, as you might expect a Lutheran pastor to do, does something with scripture that I think is incredibly informative into this conversation. Because I really want to turn around and make an assertion, like she has in this introduction I've shared, that what really comes down to here is a whole lot of legalism. And if you strip the grace of the gospel out of the gospel, I don't think you have any good news left at all. And so I want to hit a few angles here with one theme, one thesis that I probably should just put out there right up front. And it also helps explain that the title of this podcast is Displeasure. I don't necessarily mean displeasure in the sense that I'm unhappy about what I'm about to talk about, although I probably am. I think what I'm saying is that maybe we have taught women in our culture to dismiss the concept of their own pleasure. Sometimes we've done it very directly in certain, you might call it extremely conservative, homeschooling type situations. And sometimes we've done it less directly. It's more just sort of a cultural assumption or a cultural assertion. But where we can be either tolerant or very willing to look the other way at things that young men do to learn about their bodies and experience pleasure, we often do not cut women that same slack. And that has consequences that sort of extend out. We sort of set a trajectory, if you will, that for men, there's a lot of things that can be forgiven if you're pursuing pleasure, at least on paper. But for women, not the case. And a lot of the things I'm going to talk about in this show, depending on where I go after I kind of hit to the scripture part of it, uh, are going to be someone who isn't me. In fact, a lot of it is going to be somebody who I don't even know. It's just going to be things that I've sort of observed and concluded kind of from the outside looking in. Because I do want to be very intentionally careful about not diving too deeply into my own life and my own personal relationships for a couple of reasons. One of them, I don't want to do anything to endanger the quality of that relationship. And the other one is that I kind of don't want to brag. In other words, this is not an episode where I'm complaining about how bad I've got it because I don't have it bad at all. But there are decisions that I've made that I also don't want to hold up over other people and say, my experience should be everyone's experience. And this might be one of the biggest differences 
in the church today when it comes to what I'm going to describe as grace in the area of sexuality. That in this episode, I'm going to make a claim that I probably didn't make all the way until Inappropriate Conversations 20 or so, that I've been in a single sexual relationship in this lifetime. I did not do it out of fear that God would strike me down if I didn't. Uh, I did it because I met the woman that I later married uh, at a very young age. So it just played out that way. I also am far more comfortable with this situation, diving more deeply, so to speak, into a single interpersonal relationship than trying to skim the surface of multiple different relationships. But that's sort of my approach. I suppose from a seagoing vessel perspective, I'm more of a submarine than a cruise ship, for whatever that's worth. In the next episode, the next will be a talkback, I intend to look at drugs and drop another bombshell that might catch people off guard and that I've never used an illegal drug in my life, and I'm not judgmental about it. And you would tend to think that those things might go hand in hand. Again, it's this false assumption that if I've done things a certain way and gotten a good result, therefore everyone else should, and anybody who doesn't, shame on them. And if, they've, if they don't do it the way I did it and they got a bad result, then they're getting what they deserve. All that sort of nonsense which I reject. I happen to have lived my life in a certain way. That doesn't necessarily mean I want to hold that other people's head. So instead of talking a lot about my own experience, I'm going to speak more about observations as we kind of get through this. But among the things that I've observed is that you can get a mature, even mature, happily married woman into a long-term relationship where the relationship itself is secure and she doesn't have anything to fear in terms of sexual judgment or violence. And you are still far more likely to find what I might describe as hang-ups in that relationship where things related to even nudity or certainly the exercise of her own prerogatives of pleasure are subverted. That even 20, 30 years into a marriage, it is not that unusual to hear stories about people who are still, to one degree or another, sexually stunted. Maybe too small to notice um, or maybe profoundly impactful of relationships and quality of life. And it's as if we have either intentionally or in subtly unintended ways taught women to reject their own pleasure, made displeasure important. And you hear this when you hear some of the terminology that people use in direct toward women who are sexually active in maybe non-traditional ways. On the day I'm recording this, I encountered a tweet from someone going by the moniker Feminist Next Door, at Imraz, who posted the following. Society labels women who openly desire or enjoy consensual sex as unclean, sluts, whores, easy. It's insidious, but it's ingrained. It's hard to shake. Think about what that means when we're told that we asked for it, that we wanted it. Our assault disgusts you. We disgust you. I really took that to heart. My perspective on it was that we then kind of, many of the same people then complained that women are deeply, deeply and subconsciously conflicted about genuinely taking pleasure from sex. It's sort of a sinister inversion of sorts. Because on the one hand, we live in a society where if a woman enjoys sex and seeks it out for her own pleasure, we've got all of these pejorative labels for her. On the other hand, when an entire society gets this message, Even if a woman plays by, quote-unquote, all the church's rules, then she may end up having a really hard time literally turning it on in the midst of that stable marital relationship 
And then we judge women for the same exact thing that we thrust upon them kind of against their will. Again, you know, you catch a, a tween boy learning to masturbate and to some way or another, the the parental prerogative is to say boys are boys and to coach them in terms of appropriate and inappropriate things and public versus private. But I still see examples or hear examples of people who don't treat their daughters the same way, that there might be a, oh, for want of a better word, an additional level of parental mortification over a very young daughter, figuring out that touching her body in a certain way brings pleasure, compared to what you might have that laugh-it-off approach of a, of a son in exactly the same situation. So I feel like we get this double-edged sword where we are still trying to judge every move a woman makes, and at the same time, then judging women for being subconsciously conflicted about taking genuine pleasure from sex and sexuality. You need to look no further than maybe Madonna and the kind of reactions that some people, fans and critics alike, had to things like Justify My Love, Erotica, uh, the Human Nature song, which is one of my favorites. I, in fact, outraged some people in the movie theater that I was managing at the time because during the time I was in movie theaters, Desperately Seeking Susan had come to theaters. It didn't come to mine, but it had come to movie theaters. And Into the Groove was the Madonna hit single from that soundtrack. And I basically just said my perspective on Into the Groove is that it's essentially a song about female masturbation, that she's um, in a room alone, the, the proxy for dancing, uh, the fantasy is that we might be lovers of my rhythms, right? This is a good Catholic girl talking about sexual intercourse. And there were so many people just outraged at the idea that I would sexualize that song in some way. And it's like, well, of course, a few years later, Madonna kind of pulled back the veil of that a little bit, and that clearly her entire career has been about putting a, a very open mindset about female sexuality into popular music. But people didn't really notice it at the time. We have this habit, in other words, of having knee-jerk reactions. And some of those knee-jerk reactions go back to profoundly false assumptions about even who we are. If you look at just America, for example, we make a lot of excuses for, for ourselves and our repressive sexual attitudes based on the Puritans. I imagine that in our European counterparts do the same thing with terms like Victorian, but I just want to focus on America and kind of harken back to an inappropriate conversation show that I may not ever share as a talkback. We'll see what happens, but inappropriate conversation 69. I kind of knew when I got up to that number in September of 2011 that I was going to need to, I was going to need to take advantage of the potential play on words that if there is any number that calls for sexual entendre and sexual-based puns, it's 69. And it seemed like a good time for me to talk about the Puritans, because I'd read an interesting book years ago by a historian named Richard Shankman. And I'm not sure what he called the book or the chapter, but what I called it was Reasons Not to Trust Our Pure View of the Puritans. I made a joke that I was going to share in the next episode, 69 Reasons Why the Puritans... I, yeah, but it was basically looking at, at his book from that perspective. Let me share the blurb at inappropriateconversations.org from the monthly, um, the monthly index for September of 2011. And then I'll get straight to the point on how even our expectations of, of what life was like back then are false. Um, here's what I said at the time I recorded that original podcast. Most emphasis on the good old days is all about comparing the current state of society to a time when moral values were stronger and centered on the traditional family structure. The problem is that those longing looks to the past are full of self-deception. 
even the Puritans, who were often held up as an extreme example, were not what society has said they were. Premarital pregnancy, open discussions in church meetings about sexual behavior, even second trimester abortions, were not at all out of place back then. I'll bet you didn't learn that in American history class. And my reference for these stories, Richard Schenkman's book. But the one I want to kind of drill into a little bit more directly is the fact that anyone who thought it was controversial that I was describing in the most recent Talkback episode, a lot of very frank sexual conversations happening over a weekend in the Fellowship Hall of a mainline United Methodist Church in the Bible Belt of America. Well, I'm going to say that frank sexual conversations inside the church are not and have not historically in our nation's history been that unusual. In Shankman's book, he outlines a conversation where a wife, upset with her husband, brings up into a church council meeting, whatever the equivalent of that was in Puritan days, for the entire congregation to weigh in and discuss whether it was appropriate for her husband to be so reluctant to have sex with her. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, it is very possible that her interest in ensuring that she was getting regular sex from her husband was not totally about pleasure. I suppose if you were uh, the modern-day version of what we call Puritanism, uh, which I think has already been established to be somewhat of a false notion, but you might say that, well, maybe she just wanted to have a lot more kids and a large family, and by withholding sexual intercourse, he was denying that, and this conversation could have been all about procreation and childbirth. But even so, can you imagine in a mainline Protestant church today a conversation coming up on the agenda of a church council meeting about whether Jimmy should be having more sex with Sarah than he is because Sarah wants it more than he does? It's a little bit eye-opening. But in historical records, conversations like that can be found, not just in early American history, but inside the very core of what we call Puritanism today. I prefer to think of this as a story of a woman who, having gotten married and having waited for a sexual awakening at the time of marriage, had found that sexual awakening a little bit disappointing and was wanting more, not just in quantity, but also in quality. And that maybe she was speaking up and trying to address the issue of her own displeasure, the denial of her own pleasure, the lack of interest in our society at the pleasure of women. And This isn't just women. I'm going to focus there because that really is the topic of of the week. But it isn't just women. I think we we do men, young men, a very grave disservice when we create sort of a culture that suggests that for you to be alone with yourself, experiencing what your own body feels like and does, is somehow inappropriate. The first time I think I brought this up was Inappropriate Conversations number 95, Calling Your Shot. Take whatever you will from the title of that show. It's another one that I'm not sure I'm going to bring back as a talkback episode, but it does appear in the archives at inappropriateconversations.org. It's just enough to say that what we teach boys is that while this may be something that you do, it's regrettable that the only real right way to ejaculate is inside a woman having sex with her. And as long as that perspective is being maintained, you end up with what I've described before, even on past Inappropriate Conversations podcasts, as young men being encouraged to treat young women as if they are little more than a very living, realistic version of a sex doll. That I think probably my parents' generation would view somebody having an inflatable sex doll 
as more creepy than masturbating a lot. But I don't believe that they would have viewed, as a collective group, somebody who has sex with a lot of different women, including prostitutes, as being more creepy than masturbating a lot. So we've got false messages that we've given to men, too. And it may be one of the leading causes and indicators of date rape. Where Boltz Weber described a flasher situation that she personally experienced as a preteen, as a case of somebody uh, exerting power more than any sort of sexual proclivity, and I totally agree with that. And that is true of a lot of date rapes as well. But the one that I sort of described a little bit in Inappropriate Conversations 45, which is an episode about kind of false assumptions of what masculinity is and what should be, I think that will be a talkback episode um, at some point in the next year or two. So, But what I, I kind of described it in that is you know, somebody who feels like he has to prove himself to be a man, a freshman in college trying to get into a fraternity and feeling like the fact that he'd never had sex before was an issue, and presuming consent from, a, from an old high school girlfriend when it wasn't really there, taking advantage of somebody who was too inebriated to say yes or no, to the question that was clearly being imposed upon her. So we do a lot of damage by sort of the assumptions we make about both genders. And I'm frankly taking huge shortcuts I shouldn't take in assuming that our assumptions of gender are even true, that they truly represent solid modern science. And of course, everything I have said and everything I'm probably going to say the rest of the show makes assumptions about heteronormativity that is also not exactly right and fair. It's just the shortcut I'm going to take to speak to this episode in the way that I personally understand it. So we've got some issues. We're not living up to our history. Even our history was probably sexually stunted, but we are maybe now more stunted in some ways than even the Puritans were. And there's evidence to suggest that, that the technique of sex education that I received is far more robust and beneficial than anything I'm seeing out there now. Um, at least outside of whatever's going on in schools now. But even that had its issues. It made assumptions. And whether spoken or sort of subliminally communicated, women seeking their own pleasure was some sort of problem that we weren't going to smile upon. So to that end, I want to go back to Nadia Boltz Weber's book, Shameless. But before I do, I want to share the same scripture that she's making reference to. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And to sort of put some geography out there for people who've heard past inappropriate conversations where a lot of scripture has been shared, this is the section of Matthew's gospel that immediately precedes what we call the great judgment. This is coming before Jesus talking about whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So it's a single flow in terms of Jesus's conversation. In fact, I'm ignoring the parable before it to focus in, keep this a little more tight, but I'm also referring to the exact section with a little bit more context that Boltzweber uses in her book because her discussion point is essentially that if we ask people to subvert their own sexuality, to ignore their own bodies, to deny what their their brains and their bodies are telling them, we are maybe in some ways asking them to bury a part of themselves. That something that has been made in God's image is being hidden away? And is that necessarily, scripturally, what we hear? There's a lot of things we'll read if we pursued Old Testament laws or the letters of Paul about avoiding sexual immorality. But 
I'm not sure that our definitions of sexual immorality are quite in context as they should be. Paul is definitely referring to some things that we would tell people to refrain from. Child prostitution, for example. Uh, flashing, for example. Uh, rape. But we've instead taken all the behaviors we want to control, especially from our young people, and put them into that same context and made a moral equivocation about whether or not two teenagers who engage in heavy petting in the backseat of a car are just as bad as that flasher that, Web that Bolts Weber described in the beginning of her book. And that's a mistake. Before I let her speak for herself, though, here is the parable of the talents. And before I even get into that, just a quick definition, because this is a bit of Christianese. Talents is... Yeah, well, it's some sort of financial value. It's it's a unit of currency. Um, one of the Bible, the U version Bible app I have, describes a talent as being worth more than fifteen years' wages of a laborer. So, whatever you know, a, a common ordinary worker might make in one year, if you multiply that annual salary times fifteen years, that's the equivalent of one talent. So, when we're talking about one talent and two talent and five talents. The master in the story is entrusting his servants with a fairly large amount of money. And it is probably reasonable that some of them might feel like this money could be used in an investment capacity. And it's also perhaps reasonable that another one might view that money as something that he would get in a ton of trouble for if he somehow lost or squandered. Here is Jesus speaking. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. He then went away. The one who received the five talents went off at once and traded with them, and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to all who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But to those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. I've chosen intentionally the New Revised Standard Version for this 
because it refers to talents, T-A-L-E-N-T-S. And although that unit of measure is not something commonly understood by us today, I think it is a nice turn of phrase if you begin to conceive of this not in a strictly financial investment perspective, but if you look at this story more from the perspective of what are the gifts God has given to us? What are those God-given gifts and how are we using them? Because it may be true that some of the talents that people have are indeed sexual in nature. And it may be true that if a young Puritan woman is not getting the sexual attention she expects and wants from her husband, that she has every reason to complain to the entire church that her husband has buried his talents in the ground instead of investing them appropriately. Picking up with Boltz Weber's book, where she's talking about an interview, or conversations is probably a better word for it, with two parishioners she's calling Tim and Sarah. Now, for our purposes, unimportant whether Tim and Sarah are actually real people. I suspect they are. My guess is that Tim and Sarah may not be their real names. Again, unimportant. But in the story, Tim and Sarah were talking about how they they did the sexual relationship the quote-unquote right way. They waited until they were married. I mean, if you hear the Kirk Camerons of the world talk, you shouldn't even be kissing your future wife until that first kiss at the altar when the pastor says you may kiss the bride. That somehow there's going to be magic that occurs at that moment. And I wouldn't want to discount the fact that there may be situations where there really is magic. But think about what that does to the couple for whom that magic has to be worked on and they haven't done any preparations. Here's what Boltz Weber says. The church taught Tim and Sarah that God was watching their every move, ready with a head shake, like a controlling asshole with a killer surveillance system. And for a while, that theology worked on Tim and Sarah, as I know it has worked on so many. They buried their innate sexual development in order to please the master. And they entered into marriage expecting their sex lives to be blessed accordingly. Theology matters when we're talking about sexual stewardship. The parable of the talents shows us that our view of God will determine our view of what God has entrusted to us. Will it bring us flourishing and joy? Or will it bring us fear and shame? How we view our Creator defines how we view ourselves and others. I would argue that any theology that assumes God has placed humans like rats into a big lab experiment, giving us shocks for bad behavior and reward pellets for good behavior, is bad theology. So is any theology that assumes that even though God created humanity in mind-blowing diversity, that God is only pleased with a certain type of human. Pastor and theologian Robert Capon speaks this to the church, The church has, by and large, had a poor record of encouraging freedom. She has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that she has made us like ill-taught piano students. We play our songs, but we never really hear them, because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will get us in Dutch. Capon, in his book, Between Noon and Three, Romance, Law, and the Outrage of Grace, from 1997. This view of God has led so many of us to bury our sexual treasures out of fear. We deny our natures, identities, and desires in order to not anger an easily disappointed God. The result is suffering, outer darkness, and it's not of God's making. But the plan that was handed to Tim and Sarah, 
the plan that told them that they must be celibate until marriage and then adhere to specific gender roles within their relationships in order for it to be healthy and pleasing to God isn't actually a plan for pleasing God. In some ways, it's just a description of a particular type of person. Leaving Weber's book, but carrying on with that thought, it's a description of maybe a particular type of person, but certainly not all people. But it's a particular type of person that in the first passage I shared from her might just be using what is particular to them as an excuse to impose the standard of their experience on everyone else, a concept of inness versus outness that makes the way they live their life holy, righteous, true, and part of God's plan, and to make everyone else sinful and worthy of God's wrath. This is the problem that faced Tim and Sarah in her book. It's a problem that faces far too many people, both inside and outside of the church today. And the cultural norm behind it has led to, in many ways, a disconnection between women and their own pleasure. There's an expression I've heard from English friends that I don't think we often hear in America called tossing one off. That don't worry about what that guy is doing in the bathroom, he's just tossing one off. A reference to masturbation. And although this isn't something that we hand out gold stars for, it's not actively praised, it isn't viewed with a heck of a lot of concern. It's sort of accepted. But I would venture to guess that the female equivalent of tossing one off doesn't get that same cultural uh, acceptance or that same sense of inevitability or that same look-the-other-way blessing. And that, to me, is one of the issues because we're dealing with a legalism here that is not actually uniformly imposed. And to me, that's a bit of a problem. I would compare it to female circumcision. And that's, frankly, a harsh comparison. But as I circle back to it here at the end of this segment, I want to sort of make a claim that whether we realize it or not, we have been, as a culture, continuing a process of engaging in sort of an emotional circumcision imposed upon women. Now, I don't view the concept of circumcision as equal between genders. While I'm not the hugest fan in the world of male circumcision, and I question the motives in many ways, because the motives in some ways do include things like trying to minimize pleasure. So there's a certain amount of displeasure in our society directed toward an overwhelmingly large number of newborn boys in America today, people who are not Jewish and are not under any sort of uh, Jewish cultural norm that says circumcision should be done for every newborn male child. And in fact, you know, in the book of Galatians, Paul raises some very serious and harshly worded questions about whether circumcision makes any sense for Christians at all. And yet for men, it's very, very common. Having said that, if in some small way, if there's a an ease of hygiene or a sense of homogeny of appearance or other things besides minimizing pleasure that is behind the notion of male circumcision, the only thing behind the notion of female circumcision is minimizing pleasure. It's an aggressive, violent act. It's at least a deformation, if not an amputation of female sexual organs. Because one of the things that I think Weber points out elsewhere in her book, I won't quote her, but the clitoris has an interesting function bodily in that it does not serve the procreative functions that so many in the religious right would suggest should be assumed about all sexuality. 
that, yes, pleasure's measure, but pleasure just exists to ensure that there's procreation and that, you know, women should just suffer through what men have to do, all that sort of nonsense. Because if there were no acts of violence in the form of uh, physical female circumcision, then at least in theory, with a few, you know, exceptions that might be described as anomalies, all women are capable of experiencing a great deal of pleasure sexually. What we've done instead, uh, because in American society, we tend to rightly view female circumcision as an act of violence, but there are different church groups and different church groups, and there are some within the the religious right who do not uh, agree with the majority in America that female circumcision is an abomination. They would, especially if the people who are opposing female circumcision have a more liberal mindset about abortion, be willing to look the other way at this violence performed against very young girls in parts of the world. So, and and I realize I'm kind of pointing a finger at Christianity by talking about the religious right. That's my experience. But you actually see more of the physiological version of female circumcision being performed in other religious cultures, Islam, parts of Islam in particular. So just take that as a given. What I'm really more interested in is the emotional equivalent of that, where if you have a woman with a fully functioning, healthy body, capable of experiencing sexual pleasure, but she is taught, whether actively or subliminally, that that pleasure is wrong and that she'll go to hell if she experiences it, you've performed, you've performed the equivalent of an emotional circumcision of sorts. And I'm wondering if... Well, first off, I can't speak intelligently about whether this is true of women under 20 today, because I have only very limited experience, and my experiences with people who are in my family group, where there are some women in their 20s, and then the woman I'm married to and the woman my brother's married to, people that are in my family group, I'm aware of what what the 40, 50, 60-year-old woman's experience is like. And I can tell you that when you're in that older age group, this is more the norm than the exception. That this, whether it's the name-calling I mentioned in that one tweet, where the uh, you know Twitter handle... Imraz is saying society labels women who openly desire or enjoy consensual sex as unclean. They're sluts, they're whores, they're easy. That sort of thing. Or whether it's even more sort of direct than that. Whether it's the church using the power of the church to teach people that if you do X, Y, or Z, you're going to hell. There are active members of certain religious groups in America today who I'm quite sure still teach women that sex is not for their pleasure, there is something wrong if they're enjoying it, that their version of original sin and that concept is that if if the woman has an orgasm during sex, the child will grow up to be some kind of monster. These things are still taught. I was in a Bible study once in the church we no longer attend, where one of the people was a friend of a friend. So he had somebody who wasn't actively part of the congregation who was joining in to this particular part of the Bible that we were reading. And I'm pretty sure it was Romans. It was something from, from the uh, the letter writer, from letters described to Paul as an author. It was just obvious that the traditional mainstream United Methodist understanding of religion, of original sin was very different from this person's more Baptist perspective about it. And she was, in my opinion, clearly one of those people who kind of had a mindset that if you enjoyed sex too much, you're probably going to go to hell. And so that is sort of still taught. But even where we don't use those extremes, even when we dial it back and say, hey, that's that's an abnormal side of our society, even in the mainstream, you might, I mean, I've heard stories of women who still, you know, I've heard stories from men, let's put it this way, 
who see their wife naked on an extremely rare occasion and often only by accident. And whether that shame's related to things like body image, or whether that shame's related to what I might call an emotional circumcision, probably varies case by case. But what we're doing is we're not only denying women the full and healthy experience of their own pleasure, forcing them to figuratively bury their talents, so to speak, but we're also denying the man in the relationship, in a heteronormative sense, the pleasure that would come from a woman experiencing her own pleasure. I guess my attitude is that if we want to have a more sexually healthy society, that both men and women should achieve orgasmic pleasure from sex. And anything that teaches that that's a mistake somehow is a flawed theology. It would be as if the master in the parable that Jesus was talking about today would have come back and richly rewarded the slave who buried the money in the ground and punished the other two for taking inappropriate risks with his cash. We as a society are so far away from what Jesus taught that in many ways, there are probably churches out there, the kind of churches who would oppose the sex education I received in church when I was very young, who would say that if that's what Jesus taught, then Jesus was wrong. We see this far too often. I won't go into examples right now, but I've heard anti-abortion leaders who are pastors denying the deity of Jesus Christ when confronted with things Jesus taught that seem to conflict the political agenda of that particular group, that the one thing that he's willing to give away early is Jesus is God, despite being a pastor. And you wonder if some of these things in our culture persist the way they have, Again, to such a degree that a woman is still subconsciously feeling like she's doing something wrong by letting her husband touch her there with his fingers. Then, given the choice between a healthy, fully lived human experience or shame, how many Christians would give up Jesus to keep a hold of their shame? To our shame, it may be a larger number than we're willing to admit. And the Wawa pedals on the ground. This is where we're gonna have the <laughs> music. <laughs> the bounce <laughs> music, which hopefully we will either find or Jim will provide for us. <laughs> Can you type porn music into I'm iTunes not. and see what? <laughs> I'm not typing porn into anything. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. I go on the assumption that a lot of people know who the different drummer is before listening to the episode. And I suppose by avoiding reading the blurb, it's possible to be surprised. But I usually record most episodes, especially where the different drummer is not at the very beginning, assuming that it kind of doesn't matter because most people would know that. I've realized that with the talkback episodes, though, the different drummer is a little bit more hidden. I've gone into the blurb and pasted a link to the original blurb uh, years ago so that First off, I'm being transparent about what I originally said and thought when I introduced the episode, but also that's where the different drummer information is. But it would require a couple more clicks, so to speak, to get to it. 
Having said that, I am going to um, introduce this different drummer in a way that I think would make her immediately identifiable, even for somebody who hadn't you know, read the blurb and didn't know up until now. Because as I mentioned in the last episode, it seems inevitable that Nadia Boltz-Weber, this author, is going to be named as a different drummer. I'm just not done referring to her work yet. I'll get to her as a different drummer in a future episode. Our different drummer, Danae, is well-known, not just for her accent, but for her catchphrase. Hello, you are on the air. Okay, it's probably profoundly disrespectful for me to introduce a different drummer segment for Ruth Westheimer, Dr. Ruth, with a uh, assumed accent, a fake accent, an accent I'm sure I don't do that well, but... I've I've donned this accent many times in my life because I can remember being in college when Ruth Westheimer's work found its way to television and found its way to a nationwide audience. I was not familiar with Dr. Ruth as a person or as a show from anything radio. So all of the things in the New York metropolitan area that people would have been, you know, consuming from her work, uh, early questions and answers, things broadcast on the radio, things sort of revolutionizing the way sex talk is done on radio. I missed all that. I would have seen her first on television, I'm quite sure, and I was in college at the time. So didn't have any mother or father who, if they had been inclined to switch the TV off, could have been in the room to do it. And, you know, being you know more than 18 but less than 22 years old at the time, being in that in that age range... It's probably a good thing that nobody did have to make the decision about whether this was appropriate television for Greg to be watching, or even appropriate television for Greg to be watching when his still teenage but couple years younger sister could have been in the room. No, this was me, my college roommates, our girlfriends, including the woman who's now my wife, watching this show together, and for the first time seeing people answer really, really direct questions about a lot of things. Now, the reason I've got Dr. Ruth on the list for this particular show as a different drummer is that she might have been the first person outside of a Alex Comfort sex manual like The Joy of Sex or that sex education class when I was in a United Methodist Church youth group all those years ago. This might have been the first person, certainly the first person who I didn't know personally who was an outside authority. No one was handing me her book or telling me to watch her show. I chanced across her. But she was speaking very openly about sex and sexuality, and among other things, the importance of pleasure and the importance of pleasure for women. She was a wise grandmotherly counsel, reminding the young men in the room that the woman's pleasure is the key, in many ways, to your pleasure. And you shouldn't take that for granted, and you should certainly take that up as as an important priority inside a sexual relationship. That was among the things Dr. Ruth had to offer, things I wasn't hearing anywhere else. So as I usually do, let's provide some words of introduction. I'm going to start with uh, Wikipedia, but then I'm going to venture off into a couple of other resources, because part of me feels like, is it really unusual that I'm thinking about Dr. Ruth at this time in the year 2020? I'm nostalgic by nature, so I sometimes have to challenge myself to say, Am I interested in calling this person out as a different drummer for reasons that nobody would understand? Because from a pop culture perspective, that ship has sailed. But I don't think that's true. And in this uh, the biographical section of this different drummer moment, I'll, I'll kind of get to that. Um, Ruth Westheimer, 
better known as Dr. Ruth, is um, identified in Wikipedia as an American sex therapist, media personality, author, radio and television talk show host, and Holocaust survivor. Her media career began in 1980 with the radio show, Sexually Speaking, which continued until 1990. She also hosted at least five television shows on the Lifetime and other cable television networks from 1984 to 1993, in addition to being the author of 45 books on a variety of topics about sex and sexuality. Dr. Ruth has become more culturally relevant again today because of a documentary. Uh, Wikipedia says this, a documentary about her life, Ask Dr. Ruth, premiered in U.S. theaters on May 3rd, 2019. I believe it first showed up on the uh, Sundance Film Festival about a year ago. It was January of last year, so still 2019. I recently saw it on Hulu. Having previously avoided discussing her early years and about how the Holocaust affected her family and herself, Westheimer believes that current events, read into that what you will, make it necessary for her to stand up and be counted. She stated that seeing child refugees being separated from their parents upsets her because her own story is reflected in what they are going through. In the movie, Ask Dr. Ruth, it goes into greater detail, not just including the fact that she was separated from her parents at a very young age, in that sort of tween age, but did so in a way that probably saved her life. Neither one of her parents survived the Holocaust. At the time that they were sent off to camps, Ruth was in a, an orphanage in Switzerland, and this was done so through the careful and, as it turns out, extremely timely planning of her mother. As recently as uh, May of this year, The Observer featured an interview with Dr. Ruth. So she's not just a subject of a documentary, but whether she's been doing interviews to promote that documentary or simply to do what she said she did in the, uh, the articles that have been quoted in Wikipedia, deciding that now is the time for her to speak up and stand up because it was really important for her to recognize the anti-Semitism and the fascism that are creeping into even American society today and to speak up about it. There's a website called mentalfloss.com that had an article that was also from February of 2019 talking about eight enlightening facts about Dr. Ruth Westheimer. I will breeze through these very quickly because I think it provides a, a more complete picture that she isn't just the sex doctor or the uh, sometimes funny, diminutive woman uh, on TV or radio answering you know questions. I mean, to me, one of the, the shows that I valued also, like right after college, was probably when MTV put Lifeline on television with Dr. Drew Pinsky, and that probably would not have existed without Dr. Ruth Westheimer going first and blazing that trail. Here are the eight facts. The Nazis devastated her childhood. Kind of mentioned that already. She shocked classmates with her knowledge of taboo topics. From an inappropriate conversations perspective, I've got nothing on Dr. Ruth. Even at what we might call the very beginning of junior high school, she was answering very frankly and raising questions very frankly about things like menstruation and other topics. Where in, in Swiss society at the time, that would have been highly unusual and perhaps even uh, upsetting to some. Number three, she trained as a sniper for Jewish resistance fighters in Palestine. Yes, trained as a sniper, suffered a serious injury to her foot uh, from a bomb blast, and decided that maybe she should seek a different career than the military. Number four, a lecture ignited that career. She moved into academia in part because she married an Israeli soldier. They relocated to Paris. 
where she started studying psychology, and the rest, as they say, is history. Number five, people told her to lose her accent, that that could be a problem. When you think about it on radio, it probably would have been an even bigger concern than it was later on TV. But Westheimer declined to do that, saying that it helped me greatly because when people turned on the radio, they instantly knew it was me, that she is unmistakable. That was from an uh, interview with Harvard Business Review in 2016. Number six, she's not concerned about her height either, that there was a time when she thought that she might struggle to uh, catch the eye of the opposite sex if her eyes were so much lower than all of her peers. But she said that that never turned out to be a problem. Often studying in college, there was very little space in some auditoriums, but she could always find a good-looking guy to put me up on a window, she said, in that same interview. Number seven, she advises people not to take huge penises seriously. Westheimer doesn't frown upon pornography, the article says. In 2008, she told the Times of Israel that viewers can, quote, learn something from it. But she does note that the importance of separating fantasy from reality is real. People have to use their judgment when watching sexually explicit movies and the genitalia that is shown. And then finally, this one was a surprise to me, my previous studies, until I found this article, I did not see this. Westheimer lectures on cruise ships. She uses every available medium, uh, radio, TV, internet, even graphic novels, to share her thoughts and advice about human sexuality. Sometimes that means going out to sea. The therapist books cruise ship appearances where she offers presentations to guests on how to best manage their sex life, often insisting that the crew participate. She will regularly request that the captain himself read some of the questions. Quoting from the New York Times in 2018, The last time the captain was British, very tall, and he had to say orgasm and erection. Never did they think they would hear the captain talking about these things we were talking about. Of course, that's long been Westheimer's objective, to make the taboo seem tame. Or to bring back from Westheimer's Talmud-influenced perspective to Nadia Boltz-Weber's New Testament-influenced perspective that both Boltz-Weber and Westheimer are interested in ensuring that people in our society have, have the permission, if you will, to unbury their talents, to invest, hopefully, wisely, appropriately, and fruitfully, their sexual abilities, their sexual beings, in other people so that they may bear fruit, whether that be literally in the form of children or in the experience of pleasure and what it can do to strengthen a relationship. Relationships are in danger when one or both of the parties are incapable of experiencing pleasure fully, because of the baggage that has been laid on their feet by misguided people in the church. Both Dr. Ruth and Pastor Nadia are trying to dig up what has been buried and correct the nonsense. To quote Boltz Weber once again, the parable of the talents shows us that our view of God will determine our view of what God has entrusted to us. Will it bring flourishing and joy, or will it be buried in fear and shame? that to her, what her parishioners, Tim and Sarah, were handed was a very mistaken view of God and God's view of morality. They were handed a God who was like a controlling asshole with a killer surveillance system. And while the theology worked on Tim and Sarah, as I know it's worked on so many others, they buried their innate sexual development in order to please a master. And they entered into marriage, expecting their sex lives to be blessed accordingly. Well, maybe some of the work we have to do in relationships is unburying or refusing in the first place to bury things which God has given us. 
who are created in God's image. And for women in particular, there are certain parts of female physiology that exist for no other reason than to experience pleasure. To cut that out, whether literally or figuratively, cannot possibly be pleasing to the God who created us in their image. Instead, we need to be addressing the displeasure we've thrust upon women, and we need to be correcting it like it's centuries too late already. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Inappropriate Conversations interacts in multiple different ways. There's a page on Facebook that's listed as a cause. There's also a page for Walk the Earth, the other podcast that shares this RSS feed. I interact for both podcasts on Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.